resonances from other things that you've learned or studied. Um, we'll begin by davening that we should be successful in connecting to the words of tzaddikim that we say, and that this shouldn't just be intellectual fodder, but it should be something that touches our avoda and helps us to be better of the Hashem. Bain, whether we're dealing with bin adam makom, bain, whether we're dealing with bin mukhaveiro, bain, if we're trying to understand ourselves, bin adam atzmo, the chul hagavanim and all of the different avenues and colors of our service of God, we should be zochet to become more sensitive and more in touch with the reality that Hashem is trying to pump into the world even now. The words of the tzaddikim, once they were written, become ours. They belong to us now. So Hashem should guide us that we should interpret them faithfully, and not only faithfully in the way of maybe a more academic approach to understand the original intent of the author, but in a way where the words are alive and that we understand them in a way that they need to be understood for our generation and for each of us individually. So on that note, Adonai Sfasai Tiftach Ufiyah Perk Aleph, Torah Shedechsav Torah Shedechsav The whole the whole world that wants to begin his magnum opus, his ode to Torah, his long-form quasi-pose, quasi-poetry, love song to Torah, he wants to begin by introducing us to the world of Torah Shedechsav and Torah Shedechsav. When we speak of the Torah, we would be better off if we refer to the Torahs because as Rabbi Yaakov Tzvi Mecklenburg, who was the author of the Sefer HaKsavah Kabbalah, who incidentally died the year Yerukhuk was born. So they, you know, one, one exited is another ent- entered. So the Sefer HaKsavah Kabbalah, as the name of the Sefer implies, it's not to do with Kabbalah like mysticism, but Kabbalah is in the tradition. HaKsav is the written Torah, and HaKabbalah is the received tradition. And what Rabbi Yaakov Tzvi Mecklenburg was, was interested in doing uh, was showing how the written text of the Torah and the oral tradition work so beautifully together in an introduction, he writes that the written Torah is like the body of the Torah and the oral tradition is like its soul. And in the same way that a body and a soul complement each other and complete one another, and that the body without a soul is just a lump of dirt and the soul without a body is just an orb that is not manifested in any meaningful way in this world. So the two of them need each other very, very deeply. And so Ruf Kook, in this opening chapter, wants to explain to us how the Torah descends into the world how the Torah descends into the world, and how, to the extent that it's possible, we can meaningf- meaningfully interact with the Torah. How does the Torah descend into the world? And how does the human being, as the one who receives the Torah, have any right to, and in some ways is mandated to, and just metaphysically, how does the human being interact with this infinite thing, this mind of God, encased within the Torah? So if folks words are so beautiful, let's just try to read through it quickly, and then we'll come back and circle around. Does that make sense? Is that a good way to do it? catch some of the language, and I'll, I'll try to read through it fairly quickly. The written Torah we receive in its most all-encompassing, Yoser Elyon, its highest, and Yoser Makif, its most all-encompassing, Tzibor, impression, in its most all-encompassing and highest form, as is possible within our soul. In other words, the written Torah, as I put to go on to explain, is this very mysterious, exalted, almost makif in the mystical sense of, you know, the soul is described as there are three parts of the soul. This is in the Medrashita, this is not even mystical. But there are three parts of the soul. There's the nefesh, the ruach, and the neshama, which are embodied. They're like something which is more visceral. It's like part of our experience. Largely, or maybe very generally, the nefesh is the power of movement, our ability to move the, the body. That's something which is that energy that flows through our body, that spark of life that allows us to move in the world while we're alive is identified with the nefesh, which is why the Pasuk says, 
the blood is the source of, because in the same way that when you cut off circulation of the body, you can't move it. So it's, it's associated with movement. The ruach is more emotional, and the neshama is more spiritual. Touching on not just the more uh, animalistic emotion, but like really these high consciousness, human consciousness. But those are all kind of in the body, even the mind, you know, the mind, body, you know, kind of consciousness and where exactly it fits in the mind is something which is understood even in Jewish thought to be something which is in the mind. It is in the mind. It's still here. As opposed to those last two parts of the expressions of the soul called chaya and yechida are called makif in the sense that we don't really even know how to touch them. We, there's not even much we could say about them other than the fact that we have a tradition that they exist. It's hard to interact with them because they are so high out there. And so Rav Kook is saying that the written Torah we receive through this highest and most makif surrounding impression of the soul. We feel from within it the shining beauty of the light of all existence, of all of existence. These are, this is highfalutin language. Give me a second to translate it into something we can actually sink our teeth into. But first, let's translate the words. We feel within it the, the splendorous light that comes out of all existence from that written Torah. What does da'im mean? Da'im means to, to kite, to soar, like a kite, is, right? Da'im, we like soar like a kite. It is beyond the intellect, beyond logic. We feel the spirit of God. We feel it somehow hovering over us. It is simultaneously touching and not touching. We have access to it, but it's somewhat aloof. It is touching, but not touching. It, it hovers it, it, like, like a tisa, it flies. It glides, probably is a better translation. Al over the face of our lives. above them, and it shines light into our life. All the while being somehow distant from us. Ha'or mavhik, this or shines, notes it sparks. and it penetrates everything. Tachas kol underneath the heavens, excuse me, tachas kol it penetrates, bakol, tachas kol it shines on anything which is under the heavens. It is not the spirit of the nation that generates the written Torah. If all of the Jewish people got together and wanted to somehow change one letter of the Torah, and we all agreed together, let's get rid of this one letter. Since we did not generate the Torah, we have no right to change it. It's touching but not touching us. It floats somehow above us. But only the sole creator, S-O-L-E, the, in, the only creator or generator of the, of the written Torah, is Hashem himself. Kol Yitzra. The Hashem was the Yotzer Kol Yitzra, the one who generated all of creation. Torah's Chayim Zos Yisod Yitzras Kol Olam Kulam. And this Torah of life is the foundation of all of the worlds, all of the different manifestations of the worlds that exist out here in Israel. Okay, super. Anybody want to react to that even? I mean, the other, the other option to not reacting is to hear maybe the opposite of that, which is the Torah Shalom which is going to say in the second paragraph, and then maybe you'll be able to react more strongly to it. But anyone want to react to that on the surface? I was going to say, like, I mean, if you're, I don't mean to get to the um, Torah Shalopeya, but like, the Torah Shalopeya is, I mean, is, is the word of Hashem, Torah Shalopeya, I mean, obviously, it's, it's, it's Kedusha, but it's, it was, you know, it's, it was written by my man, obviously it's from Parsina, but it was written by man, and Torah Shalopeya, I mean, it's harder to, I guess, really find the real meaning in it, when it's from Hashem, because it's so much above us, so we can't really get to it. So, Can I share something that I would have done in the second time around, but you touched on it so strongly? Two diukim that I want to make. First of all, this notion that Rav Kook writes in the third line, that So actually, in halacha, there's a halacha component to this. Okay? In halacha, 
Um, this is found in the Sefer Shulchan Aruch Harav, okay, which is the Alter Rebbe's Shulchan Aruch. But it's a halachic Sefer. There's no no chesivus in there. And um, and the post quotes is the Mishnah Brewer quotes the whenever he whenever he quotes uh, Hagraz, not the Grizz, the Graz. Um, he's referring to Hagon or Bzalman. Right, Graz is Hagon or Bzalman, which is the Pshinu Dalal Biyad. So uh, the Shulchan Aruch Harav in Hilchos Talmud Torah writes that halachically, if one is studying a Mishnah and has no idea what it is that they're reading. They don't understand the words. They have not fulfilled the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. They may have studied, they may be fulfilling the mitzvah of being Osek in Torah or struggling to understand, but the mitzvah of Talmud Torah is only fulfilled through understanding. However, if a person is reading Tanakh and has no clue what the words mean, what is the value of this? That's a, we could delve into that, because right, the halacha itself is, is expressing some sort of value. There's a philosophy to the halacha. But the halacha is that if a person is reading the written Torah without understanding it, they do fulfill the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. Why? Because we're saying there's something axiomatic about the written Torah that it's never understandable to begin with. So even if you think you're understanding it, you're not understanding it. Right? The written Torah, like Rav Tzadik and Rav Laila, is something which cannot possibly be understood without the oral Torah. It doesn't, it doesn't have meaning without the oral Torah. As Hillel taught the convert who wanted to receive only the written Torah, not the oral Torah, he came back to him and he said, no problem, I'll teach it to you. Here, look, Aleph, Bez, Gimel, Dalet, hey, come back to me tomorrow, I'll teach you the next five letters. The next five, the next uh, day, he said, I'll teach you the next five letters. He said, let's just quickly review the letters we did yesterday. And he wrote on a piece of paper, Tafshin, uh, Reish, Kuf, Tzadi. And he said, okay, let's review the letters from yesterday. Tav, Kuf, Reish, and Tzadi. He pointed at them, he said, Alf, Bez, Gimel, Dalet, He said, what? That's not what you showed me, Alf, Bez, Gimel, Dalet, He said, I spent the whole night reviewing it. I know Alf, Bez, Gimel, Dalet, Give me that pen, you know, you wrote Alf, Bez, Gimel, Dalet, He said, that's not Alf, Bez, Gimel, Dalet, So Hillel said to him, in the same way that you believe me that Alf, Bez, Gimel, Dalet, is Alf, Bez, Gimel, Dalet, then you should also believe me about the oral Torah because even the written Torah has an oral component. The letters themselves, to read it, you need, right? So the written Torah is not intelligible without the oral Torah. But I'll stay, say one step further. Rav Cook says that the nation was not, did not generate it. Now, this is a funny case where sometimes misreading something can actually lead you to an insight. So the first time I read Baruch Torah, which was many, many years ago, I misapprehended what Rav Cook was saying here, and I thought he was saying which is true. The second to last line, Lo ruach ha'uma The nation, the, the, it is not possible for the spirit of the nation to cholel this or this great light. Now, I, I translated it before as to generate. The cholel means to generate. However, the cholel also comes from the same source as of, of like chulin, l'chalel, the chilul Hashem, to create a void, a vacuum. And so the two of those go together that because we did not generate this great light, it's touching but not touching. There's no way for us to really, as I was saying before, to the extent that it's possible to interact with the Torah, we speak only of its oral component. The written Torah seems to be above us. Let's see the opposite of that, and then we'll, we'll make a few other points that I think will really flesh this out. The Torah Sheval Peh, I really, I would say that my ability, if at all, to read or cook, is because when I was Shanabeh, um, I had a Chavrusa with one of the Madrichin in, in Yeshiva, in Rishit, who was an Israeli guy who grew up like living in Slot. And we used to learn or cook together, and I would just... I had a lot of trouble following it, you know, but I would just write down every word that I caught, and it really helped me introduce me to a whole world of vocabulary and cooks And there were a number of things that were really profound, but I'll try to go a little bit slower. That was the chavrusa. This is like more machine. We'll really try to spell it out. But if you can, if you write down the meanings, especially of these, you know, these words, it'll really broaden your vocabulary and, and it'll help you to learn the cook on your own. And there's nothing. What's that? Yeah, he has certain words that resurface. Just like Marl has words that resurface. The Torah Shemal Peh. When we're dealing with the with the oral Torah. When we're dealing with the, with the oral Torah, you've already descended into life. I mean, there's something about the written Torah which is, it's not even in life, it's not part of life. It's, it's, it's fairy tale, it's, it's myth. Not in the sense of it being ahistorical, 
but it's so much in the world of the ideal, which by the way, Rav Aviner, who was one of the students of Rav Tzihuda, who wrote extensively on copious notes on Orza Torah, explained that why is it that children learn the Torah Shittachsan? Why is it that the, the Mishnah in Avos suggests that a five-year-old should learn the written Torah? And then only once you get to 10, 15, that's when you should start learning the oral Torah. The answer is not just because it's sometimes a little bit easier to read, which the actual words are a little easier, the concepts like, don't demand such juggling of logic, but also because a child lives in this world of imagination, lives in the world that I could leave my kids with you know, some Playmobil and a few magnetiles, and it's only a matter of moments before there are castles and dragons, and you know, they live in this world of, and again, I'm gonna use the word myth again, but I don't mean myth as an ahistorical reality, I mean the world of this fantastical world of Torsha Birsaf. When we get to the world of Torah Shaval Peh, we already are yordim letoch kvar elachai. We get to real life. Real not in the, world, not in the sense of, of tr- more true, but real in the sense of more realized, more appropriate, more germane to our everyday life. We'll come back around to this. Anu chashim, we feel within it, like the word chush. We feel, with, we sense within it, sheinenu lekablim es haorel yonu betzinur hasheni shebenesham. We feel that we receive the light of the Torah Shaval Peh through a second pipeline. In fact, in the original manuscript of Rav Kuk's writings on Oras Torah, go back to that first line, Torah We receive the Torah Shev through this most upper impression. So that word Tzior, in early printings of the Oras Torah, there's actually a manuscript variant that says, not Tzior, but Tzinor, the pipe. That we receive it through the highest pipeline. And that would explain this second, right? That we receive it through a second pipeline, Torah Shev a pipeline, which seems to re- relate more to the world of action, more to the world of, not ideal, but of real life. We feel the spirit of the nation in the Torah Shavalta. We feel more the personality, the psychology, the persona of Am Yisrael in the Torah Shavalta. The history of the Jewish people in the Torah Shabbat. She Torah Shabbat Peh, I mean, sorry, Hakshura Kishal Heves, which is tied, which is Kashur, like a Kesher, which is woven into and, and somehow tied to the Torah, Kishal Heves Bigacheles, like a, what's a Shal Heves? Like a flame to the, to the coal. The flame and the coal are like one, somehow. Right? Like where the flame ends and the coal begins, as opposed to the Torah Shabbat, which we described as touching but not touching. Kind of like floating over its never in this mysterious way of Cook's analogy is not like wind hovering over the water, which somehow interacts with it in a mysterious way, but it's not clear like where the wind is touching the water, the water is just kind of reacting to it. Here we have the opposite, where it's not even clear where the fire and the coal distinguish from one another. There, there's this ember that's burning with this fire, which is in somehow inside. And it's it's both at the same time. It's Kishal Heves Bigachelis or Torres Emes. It's burning with the light of the truth of Torah. It causes, it's goreim, like grama. It causes the ofiyaha the unique character of Torah Shabbal Peh. In other words, the Torah Shabbal Peh is almost like, um, <laughs> it's like the Torah Shabbal Peh is like a, this is a ridiculous muscle, but, but it works. It's like, um, you know those like cho- chocolate trays that have like different, kind of like, uh, there's like a star and, a, and like a, a heart and a different thing. And you just like pour the chocolate into it and it somehow takes on the shape and the character of the tray. The Jewish people hold the Torah Shabbat in such a way that they interact in a way that it forms, it creates the shape and the ofiyah, the characteristics of the Torah Shabbat exist in tandem with the spirit of the nation, with the Ruach HaUmah. It causes the Torah Shabbat to be formed in its unique form. 
Vadai Kalula hi Torah Sa'adam has those Bitoras Hashem. Now, certainly, says Rav Kook, we believe that this Torah Shvalpeh, Vadai Kalulahi, it certainly is included within the Torah Hashem. In other words, God forbid to say that the Torah of, of Torah Shvalpeh is only of human form. In fact, one of the great mysteries of the Torah Shvalpeh is the fact that it's somehow, we believe that it is, you know, to borrow maybe from more philosophical literature, right? So there's a big machlokas between Socrates and Aristotle through the pen we receive through the pen, the pen of Plato, right? Uh, what, is, what is poesis? Here's your philosophical word of the day. What is poesis? P-O-E-S-I-S. P-O-E-S-I-S. Well, what English word does it sound like? That's a Greek word. Po- po- poetry. Poetry. P-O-E, right, is the showrush of the word poetry and poesis. And poetry, poetry means the art of poesis. Poetry means, right, like, like ophthalmology is the is the is the um, is the action of working with eyes, right? So optho, right? So poetry is working with poesis in a way of, of action. It's bringing poesis to action. So what is poesis? Poesis means creativity. Creativity. Poesis means creativity. Now it's machlokes between uh, Socrates and Aristotle whether <laughs> Socrates kind of that poesis is always iserus delayla. You're being moved by the muses in the language of Socrates. You're being somehow inspired. The muses are inspiring you, right? The gods of the pantheon are inspiring you to creativity, and you are almost being, uh, you're just hosting. <laughs> in other words, you are, you are being taken over by the muse, and you, your poesis takes place in this way. Right? Aristotle thought it was a much more uh, conscious decision that you are going to create that. So for Rav Kook, Rav Kook was certainly aware of, of Greek. Uh, in fact, when Rav David Cohen, the Nazir, first met with Rav Kook in that fateful meeting that turned into a song that I wrote, um, when they met that first time, um, when Rav Kook was stuck in interwar uh, Europe during World War I, and they met right near the Rhine River. He was in the university over there, and he came to meet with Rav Kook. So Rav Kook was learning with Rav Tzihuda, and he, after they finished learning, they started a conversation. And Rav Kook the whole time was just quoting uh, the Greek tragedies, like in the original Greek. And Rav David Cohen, the Nazir, who eventually became student of Rav Kook, was like really upset. He was like, "This is what I came here to speak. I came for like, I came for like, I came for like Jewish tradition, and like this is what I'm studying in university." But this is what he was interested in. So Rav Kook was like, "Oh, that's what you're studying? Like, let's talk about it." And he was like proficient in the Greek tragedies. So, poesis could be something which is completely coming from above. Lahavdol Torah Bichsav. And at the same time, Rav Kook saying here, Vadai Kalula hi Torah Sa'adam azos Hashem. The Torah Shabal Peh, which is a conscious act of creativity on the part of a human being, there is, it's both, meaning it's, it certainly is included in the Torah Hashem, but there is a conscious effort of a human being to become a conduit, I would say like that. If we wanted to synthesize those two words, there's a conscious effort of a human being to become a conduit of the proper divine interpretation of the Torah Shabal Peh. Once again. So certainly, certainly, this man-made Torah, which is Torah Shabbat which is Torah Shabbat excuse me, is included in the Torah Hashem. Torah Hashem, he gamking. It is not only included in it, but it is Torah Hashem. That I, that wise I, that open I, that Ayin Pekucha, which saw with the 
clear lens of prophecy. Who's he talking about? Who is the clear eye that saw with Aspaklan and Mehira? Who's he talking about? Moshe Rabbeinu. Right? He's just referring to Moshe Rabbeinu as, you know, like in the same way that Frank Sinatra is sometimes referred to as old blue eyes. Right? That's how they refer to it. Because he had blue eyes. There's a fancy literary term for that. Um, it's found in the Torah also. When Moshe Rabbeinu says, not a hoof will be left in Mitzrayim. That's a poetic way of describing a horse. Right? Not a hoof will be left in Mitzrayim. There's a... I forget what it is. There's a, there's a fancy literary word for describing it in something by a single part of it, but by a standout part of it. Right? So Moshe Rabbeinu, he's referring to as that eye which saw with Asmaklar and Ira, meaning Moshe Rabbeinu, Hanelman Behol Beis Hashem. Now you know him, right? Hanelman Behol Beis Hashem, who was the most trusted one in all of God's hands. That's how Moshe Rabbeinu is described in the Torah. Lo Efshar. It's not possible. Shemimena, from that eye, it's not possible that from that eye, Tianelemes Shefas Chaim Zoshel Psucheha. It is not possible that that eye uh, somehow missed, it was made absent from that eye. This Shefas Chaim, this Shefa, this source of benevolence of life, in all of its openings, in all of its different ways that it comes out. In other words, the Torah Shabbal Peh. Moshe Rabbeinu certainly saw the Asfaklari Meira with his great Havua, saw everything that I would be able to see in the written words of the Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu already saw it. He already had access to that. As Chazal say, and this is, by the way, just as a note to those who will study this, because we won't finish the whole safe, I don't think this year. I don't think it's possible. I don't think. But um, for those who study Or Torah on their own later in life, Rav Kook oftentimes will end a piece with a, it's such a cool way of writing. He basically must have been thinking of a certain rabbinic idea, and then he like fleshes it out, and then the last line in his musings on it is like, and here's the piece that this all came from. Right, so his last line in, in Or Torah Parakalaf Os Aleph is, Gam ma shetalmid vasik asid l'chadish, which is a mimer chazal, you find this in the Gemara. Gam ma shetalmid vasik asid l'chadish, even that which the veteran student would in the future come to to, uh, to be Mechadish, Hakol Namar the Moshe Misirai. It was all given to Moshe Rabbeinu already at Sinai. In other words, we feel in this the remarkable interplay between the Torah Shavachsav and the Torah Shavachsav. And his last, last line, the Shnei Orim Halal, these two lights, like the sun and the moon, Osim Olam Shalom, they create a full world. Shashamayim Ha'aretz, Yishaku Vizocha, where heaven and earth are able to kiss. Yishaku, Neshika, are able to kiss within the two of them. Alternatively, Yishaku could also mean uh, are watered. Sometimes Rav Kook will use words that can be both ways. And they both work. Like Mashkin Beis Hashlachit, the first Mishnah in Moikata. Right? Yishaku, they are irrigated, which also would be a beautiful way of expressing it. But the Torah, which is a Maimala Torah, is irrigating both Shemayim and Arts through the Shemayim part of Torah, which is the written Torah, and the oral Torah, which is the Arts part of Torah. Okay? Um, reactions to the second part. And then I'm going to make some Haaris. Yeah, I also um, think it's incredible, incredible the way that first when he's talking about Torah Shulapat, he's not talking like exclusively Mishnah Gemara, and it to me it feels like he's talking about like the Torah of each generation that, that we look at like how through the different periods of time like the way that we approach the Torah is so different, and it's not to say that like these innovations are like are like wrongly just being influenced by the time, but that's so ingrained within the nature of Torah Shabbat is that like it contains that um, that Ruach Haruma, that, that the spirit of the nation, that we, as like history evolves and society evolves and the way that we look at the world evolve, the way that we interact with Torah also evolves and that's that's not like just a nature of humanity that it just is that way, almost like what you were saying about Mags before, but that that's L'Chakila, that that's definitionally what it is that Torah Shabbat is so much about how we as a people speak to the Torah and how the Torah speaks to us. Hmm. 
I wonder if I'm reading too much of what you're saying, but are, are you also saying that what we very technically and minimalistically refer to as the written Torah, well, this is certainly true, but the, the written Torah, um, the bigger Kiddush will be the other way, but I'll say both. The written Torah, as in the Psukim, has an oral component to it, but more startlingly, that, let's say, the Shas, can, there's a, when we speak of the Shas, there is the way of studying it as written Torah, and there's the way of studying it as oral Torah. In other words, there is a way of approaching the Shas as a non, like, at a certain point, it's a closed body of literature, and it can't be touched, and it's touching but not touching, and it's Tasme al Chayenu, and all these different kind of Lashonos, and then there's also our interpretation of that. In other words, it's broadening the terms written Torah and oral Torah and using them in a more, in a more broad sense that written Torah doesn't only refer to the 24 books of Tanakh versus the 60 books of Shas and Medrash. But there's a way of studying Torah that is called written versus oral that applies both to both. I don't think that's what I was saying, but I think, <laughs> a lo- I, I think that's a, a, definitely a logical leap from what I was saying. That it, like more, more of what I was saying is like that from like where you're there's saying, a progression, there's a historical progression. That, that, that there's a historical progression, and like when we see something like like a work like the Tanya, you know, that, so that, 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 yeah, so that part I got, but I wasn't sure if you were also saying because I was hearing also, like also that I think I think I definitely feel that way, but it wasn't what I was saying. Okay, I'm gonna make a few short parts here. Um, is it what time is it? Wow, okay, so did we miss Marv? Uh, they might have not started yet, yeah. Okay, so let's pause here. Let's go.